0: It's my pleasure to be with you here on The Clark Howard Show, and I'm so glad you have taken time out of your day to join us, our mission to help you keep more of what you make. Coming up in just a few minutes in today's Clark-rageous moment, children in elementary school having credit cards. I'm going to fill you in. And coming up yet later, what you can earn on savings has hit a bit of a pothole. I want to tell you what you need to know and what you should do to protect your wallet. Uh, Recently on the show, probably about a month ago, I was talking about uh, the various ways that if it's important to you to get energy from alternative sources like solar or wind or hydro or whatever, how to get that done and which ways are efficient, which ones don't work and all that. And I said at that time that I was going to talk about how solar has become a much more affordable choice for you to do at your own home, in which case I'm just now getting around to it, sorry. But there was a very well-researched article in the August issue of Kiplinger Personal Finance about how much the cost of solar for installing at a home has dropped and how you go about shopping for it. And it's fascinating how much cheaper it has become because the panels not only are being manufactured at a much lower cost, but the efficiency ratio of a panel is way up. That's for every panel you install How much energy that panel can actually translate from the sun coming to it into electricity for your home. And so now we're talking about an overwhelming number of cases where you're going to get a payback in a short number of years, usually somewhere seven, eight, nine years, for installing solar if. You're a good shopper in the marketplace. What do I mean by that? So if you decide you're going to put solar panels on your house, know that as you get quotes from companies, those quotes will vary by huge numbers, huge numbers, where one company might say they'll put solar on your house for 12000 and another might say 33000 for the same installation of panels on your home. And often, if people take the time to get quotes from three companies, there's a standard thing in human nature that we throw out the high and the low and we go with the middle. We just assume there's got to be something wrong with the low-cost provider. The high-cost one's too much, so I'm just going to go with the middle one. Do you know about this with people buying wine by the glass at a restaurant, that people are are just wired never to order the lowest cost glass of wine in the type they want, whether it's a red or white or I don't know anything about wine. But anyway, whatever they're ordering, that they will move up at least one price point just because they assume the lowest cost one's going to be bad. And the lowest cost one may be absolutely fine. But we're the same way when we do something with our home. So really there's no reason that the lowest cost system you're quoted won't necessarily be fine. It very well might be. So the average size of a solar install in the country today will tend to cost if you shop around somewhere between eleven and fifteen thousand dollars according to the research at Kiplinger. We want to be precise, $11,000 and $14,500. And that's after the federal tax credit. But the most important thing is what I said about shopping around. Because the price difference from one company to another consistently will be gigantic. And be careful paying anybody big money up front, because you know how I feel about that, But it really is great being your own power plant. The only thing I feel bad about is we installed solar in our house eight years ago, and we have a hillside. We put the panels on the hillside instead of on our roof, and that was a money saver in our case because we had the space to do so in a good shot of the southern sky. But the fact that panels are so much more efficient today than they were eight years ago It feels like buying any kind of electronics, and that's what's happening with solar, is that the efficiency and the price points are declining like happens with electronics, and that's why today it's so much more affordable option than it was even just a few short years ago. Joe joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Joe. Hi, Clark. How are you? Great. Thank you, Joe. You've been through a journey, haven't you? Yes, I have. So you went through a chapter 7, chapter 13, right? For people who aren't aware of what that means, you went through a payment plan to pay back um, the substantial amount of the debts that you entered bankruptcy with. Correct. And were you successful in your chapter 13?
1: Barry was discharged in June.
0: Congratulations to you, because thank you. It's, it's actually, I hate to mention it, but most people who enter Chapter 13 are unable to successfully complete it. And the fact that you did says something about your self-discipline.
1: I appreciate that. Yeah, and what's strange is I have, I have three. The three credit bureaus have three different ratings for me now one says i have a good score one says i have a need to work and one says i have a fair score and i thought i was surprised that i had a good score
0: and have you looked at what data each are reporting to see if there are significant differences in what they're reporting
1: the only difference between the three is train union has a closed account that shows a balance which I've talked to the uh, credit union, they're taking care of that. And the Experian has a collections on it that uh, should have been removed. All right.
0: Now, with the report you got from Experian, there's a dispute form. If you did it online, you can dispute online. But I like for you to do so uh, filling out paper and sending it. I, I hate to waste your money on this, but sending the dispute to them by certified mail.
1: Yep, I can do that. I did talk to the collections agency, and they did tell me they were going to send it up. They didn't take it off, but it hasn't come off yet.
0: Right. They tell you that, they get you off the phone, and they don't do anything. So that's why you want to do that dispute with Experian, and you notify the collection agency that they didn't remove it, and so you now are uh, putting it through as a dispute with Experian. And they may turn around now and do what they said they would do and didn't do before. Great. That's awesome. And, and then with what? your Chapter 13, did any of your existing uh, credit card accounts at that time, did they offer you reinstatement of your card when you successfully paid off the balance, or are you having to start fresh now?
1: I have to start fresh.
0: All right. I want to give you a place to start As soon as you get these two issues resolved with TransUnion and Experian, and I'd like you to look at the pedal card. Have you ever heard me talk about it?
1: No, is it B P E D or T? -T.
0: P-E-T. If I had better diction, it would be easier for you to understand. uh, (laughs) It's uh, pedal card, P-E-T-A-L card.com, and it is a credit card that they'll issue it's a visa card that they issue without having to put up any kind of security deposit okay and they run a math formula on you to see if they'll issue you a card and so it's a yes or no from them but they specifically specialize in people who have not had credit before in your case it will depend on you having those two things cleared up and then hopefully that should lead to an approval through pedal card. Fantastic. And so with it, um, charge on it sparingly, you know, pay the balance in full every month, and it will it will give you the leapfrog you need to fully reestablish credit.
1: Fantastic.
0: Now let me say what you do if pedal card does not accept you. The next step would be, are you a member of a credit union yet? I think you mentioned a credit union.
1: Yeah, they they uh, they were part of the Chapter 13 bankruptcy, so I don't think they like me anymore.
0: That's not necessarily true. because oh, really? Because they dealt with one person after another who's done Chapter 7, where the debt just gets wiped out and they got nothing. You're different. You actually got them money. And so as somebody who successfully completed Chapter 13, they may be willing to extend you a small credit line, again, on a credit card. Really? Yeah.
1: That's great advice right
0: there. So I would say those are the two paths I'd pursue initially, and I think you're going to be in good shape. Now, the third alternative, if both of them are like, no, we don't want you. The third one is Amazon has a new credit program that is somewhat controversial because it requires you to join Prime, but if you do it, then you make um get was it eight on-time payments? I think it's eight, nine, something like that. And then you're established with a regular credit card with them. And I have a briefing on that Amazon secured product on clark.com best to you moving forward and john joins us on the clark howard show hi john hey clark how are you doing today great thank you john great great uh, my question relates to property um i'm
1: in the process of doing some house shopping, trying to buy a house before it gets cold this year. And so, uh, in my community, they have a lot of new subdivisions coming up. And quite naturally, you have the option, you know, where people will selling their house for whatever the reason. So, I was just curious as to where you could possibly get the best bang for your buck, just to start investing in a new house or just getting a, a house in a decent, the same neighborhood, similar neighborhood that's within the same price category? What would be your long-term best bet?
0: Used homes are a much better bet than new homes. Okay. And the reason is is that you get more square footage for the dollar in a used home than you do in a new home. You know, construction okay. costs have gone up, materials, and the cost of labor. So effectively what you pay per square foot is higher in a new home now there are people just like with a new car there are people who want a new home because they want to be the first person to ever live in it they want right. everything to be brand new and all that but you asked me from an investment standpoint right yeah more well, yeah more well, yeah yeah from, from an investment standpoint absolutely used homes okay what they call pre-owned okay. in the business or existing because if you run the math and you figure out what the cost is per square foot Mm -hmm. On the used home versus the new, you'll be stunned how many more square feet you get for the same dollar amount. And here's the funny thing let's say you stay in a home three years, five years, okay, just for argument's sake, and you start with a new home. What do you have three or five years later when you're selling it? Well, you have a little investment, but not a lot of equity. No, you have a used home. Oh yeah. <laughs> so you pay, you pay the new yeah. home markup, and when you go to okay, sell, yeah. you have a used home. So why not yeah, yeah, skip that? That's... Let somebody else okay. pay that new home markup. And you have the used home up front that already has absorbed that new home markup. The other reason that I really like used homes versus new, is usually they're in a neighborhood that's already clearly has market value, fair market value. It's been there for a while. The prices have settled in the marketplace. When a new home community is being built, it is a certain amount of guess what those new homes are worth. And the marketplace may decide later they're not worth as much as what that builder has initially put them for sale for. It's possible the reverse could happen as well. But the risk level is lower with that used home purchase. Today's Clark Regis moment is an absolute stunner. It is how the credit card companies are reaching into the all important elementary school student market. Scams, ripoffs, outrages. It's a Clark Regis moment. Survey from T. Rowe Price finds that the use of credit cards by elementary school and middle school students has skyrocketed. Now, one in every six elementary and middle school kids have a credit card. I I can't make this stuff up. So what's happening is parents are getting an authorized user card for Their elementary school kids or middle school kids. And then the parents are stunned when their kid uses the card in some way they have not approved of, remembering that an eight-year-old doesn't necessarily have the maturity to make good decisions. Because I can tell you, 18-year-olds don't always have the maturity to make good decisions. What do you think an eight-year-old is going to do? So... This is an idea whose time has not come. Don't do it. It is clark-rageous to give an elementary school kid a credit card. If you want them to have some kind of plastic, get them a stored value card where there's a set amount of money on it. You don't have to worry that they go and buy something online or whatever that's going to end up really damaging your wallet. The harm is limited to what they have been able to to have loaded on that stored value card, or you have loaded on that stored value card. And please don't give them a credit card in elementary school or middle school. It's my pleasure to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to keep more of what you make. There was an article recently that I chuckled at. It was one that was saying that you're wasting your time trying to earn more money on money you've saved. Why would you bother with that? wonder what bank got an author to write something like that. Because most of the banks are paying close to 0% on your savings. And yet, untold billions of dollars, if not in trillions, is sitting in savings accounts at big banks, earning nothing. I mean, one one-hundredth of a percent or something. It's so silly. I saw an item on MarketWatch that some of the banks, to try to throw you off worrying about the fact they're paying you nothing, are offering things like 90-day free trials of music services and stuff if you put money in a savings account. Really? Really? Might as well go back to what they did in the 1960s and give you a toaster in return for paying you no interest on your money. Online banks are still where it's at. And yes, it does matter. If an online bank is paying two point something percent and your bank is paying zero percent, okay, let's take the difference between two point something and zero. You're earning two point something percent instead of zero. That's good math, right? And you can still, if you wish to punish yourself and still do business with a big bank, you can still have your checking account there, link it to an online bank, and earn a better rate on your savings. And the rates have dropped a little from the online banks, but there's still much better rates than from the traditional banks. There's no reason you should let inertia in your life Cost you money. Let me see. Do you want to get up in the morning and have a mantra where you're excited about how you help the stockholders of some big bank subsidize their lives by giving them use of your money for free? Do you want to be excited about that and chant, hey, I gave money to the stockholders again today? No, you don't. You want your money working for you. These online banks are FEIC insured, you're going to be in good shape with them, and you can go to one of the online banks do your checking as well. The two that seem to get the best ratings for that are Ally and Discover, but I've got a list at Clark.com of a variety of online banks that do a great job with all your banking, not just your savings account. And there's even other ways to earn FDIC-insured great rates. Betterment and Wealthfront, which are both great organizations to do ultra-low-cost investing with advice along with it. Betterment is now offering a FDIC-insured savings account at 2.69%, Wealthfront 2.57%. Jamie joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, how you doing? Hi, hi how are you? Great, thank you. How can I serve you today?
2: Well, my seventeen-year-old son has expressed an interest in buying my home in about two to three years. Um, I'll be relocating, <clears throat> excuse me, after he finishes high school next year, and he is graduating high school with his basic welding certification and will be working at one of the local shipyards or in their apprentice program.
0: All right, Jamie. I am so proud of your son, as I'm sure you are, that he has the maturity at 17 to want to already be a homeowner. I think that is fantastic. How did he develop such incredible financial maturity at such a young age?
2: Pretty much with me beating him over the head with it for the past several years. (laughs) Um.
0: I think you need to give him some credit for listening, too.
2: Yes, the reality is coming soon. He is going to turn 18 in February, and then shortly after, he's going to graduate. And right now, since I'm moving, he knows he can't. uh, The initial plan was, you can't live with me. You have to find an apartment. Well, around here, a decent apartment, it's going to cost you around $1,200.
0: So (laughs) as a welder, as an apprentice, what will he earn per hour when he's an apprentice? And how long does apprenticeship last?
2: Uh, it depends on the program. It could last anywhere from like six months to over a year. Starting off, he's probably going to make somewhere around um, thirty-five thousand a year. And As then an it apprentice, to go up from there. Um, yes.
0: All right. So he's he potentially a good candidate to buy your home. So, are you in a position where you can keep it when you've moved away, and he could rent from you till? Yes then then i think that sounds great does he have um, any credit established yet
2: not yet my plan was and this is one of the reasons i want to speak with you and see if this is a sound plan my plan was when he turned 18 in february to get him a secured credit card and then once he's finished with high school and he's established in his job he can take over. Um, there, he has a his car is in my name. Um, it's a car payment of two hundred dollars. We kept it very low, deliberately. And the plan was for him to take that over once he gets established in his job. And my thought was, with between the secured credit card and the car payment, if he does that for a couple years and he doesn't do anything else stupid with his credit report, I was wondering if that would be if you thought that would be enough to establish his credit where he could get a mortgage loan.
0: Okay, so. Uh, let's talk this through. The car loan is in your name, not Correct. his. So that will not Correct. help. Just the fact that he's making the payments will not help him establish any credit.
2: Oh no. Well, the, the the idea was for him to, Refi, for him to take over get the, his own. the loan.
0: Well you'd have to yeah, you'd have to basically you'd have to sell him the vehicle and he'd have to get his own loan.
2: Yeah, and that's exactly what we planned on doing.
0: Now you will have to co sign that loan.
2: I figured,
0: yeah, so uh you've gotta you've gotta feel in your heart and soul that the responsible seventeen year old we have before us right now remains that, but right if if he does, he's got this goal clear that he wants to own a home, then that would work where you could sell him the vehicle, he could take out a loan with you as a cosign. keep the loan term as short as you can, okay, second thing. The secured card is an alternative to that, since you're already going to be all in on on having to co-sign the car loan. What I would do is I would add him as an authorized user to one of your existing credit cards. Okay. And you can go ahead and do that, and don't even give him the card. He doesn't need the card. He just needs to be an authorized user, and that will show your good credit showing up on his credit file. Okay, I can do that. And so those two things will be a solid help. He's also going to need to start putting down substantial amount of money into savings every month through his apprenticeship so that he's building up down payment money for when he would buy the home from you. How about how much do you think he would need? So he's going to need a minimum 3.5% of the purchase price of the home. How much do you guess the home's going to be worth? You've got to sell it to him at, at something approximating fair market value.
2: Fair market value right now is one hundred seventy-five thousand.
0: Okay, so he's going to need to be safe seven thousand dollars that he has saved. It'd be better to get to ten. But okay. if he if he is living at home for now, will we'll, you won't move away till he's already in that apprenticeship, right? Correct. So he'll be able to save a lot more money when he's not paying rent till you move out and then he starts paying rent. He, That's a perfectly achievable amount of money for him to save.
2: Sounds perfect. My mor- home mortgage right now is only 500 so I told him he just had to pay for the mortgage while he lived there as rent, and he's not going to find a, an apartment anywhere around here for that amount.
0: Right. Now, technically, you're supposed to charge him fair market rent, But you can forgive some of that. You can give some of that back to him because you can give any living person $15,000 in a year. You can do that pretty much within that range however you want. But uh, you're certainly helping him establish himself and you've taught him good values. He's going to have a great job that pays very well, hard work but pays well, and good for you and good for him. Mary is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Mary. Hi, Clark. Mary, you went through an experience that would terrify a lot of people. What happened? (laughs) Well, um,
3: I was on a flight on a major American airline, and um, we were heading from Portland, Oregon to London. And somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean, this this was about three weeks ago, um, we lost an engine. And... It was told to us through the captain that we've had some technical issues and we have to turn around and land in Iceland. And so we were just, we had no idea what happened until we landed and we found out, oh my gosh, we've lost an engine.
0: So that that expression means two things. Did the engine vibrate off of its um, connection and fall to the ground or the engine failed to work anymore?
3: I don't know. It stopped working, I think. Yeah, you'd probably,
0: people would have been buzzing if there was no engine, because that's a twin-engine plane, probably, that you were on. You'd notice an engine missing.
3: We did notice. We noticed um, some kind of, like, shaking and rumbling, and then the plane sort of veering, and then silence on one side of the plane. So we did notice something, but we didn't know what it meant. So we landed in Iceland, and we were told by the airline, that we would have to wait for another plane to come and get us. And it was, you know, we're sort of remote, and so we knew it would be a, a little while. And so we, we didn't land in London until about seven hours after our original um, uh, landing time. So most of us missed uh, our original, like, connecting flights. And um, we were told when we landed that... The airline was not going to help us. <laughs> they were not going to help us re you know reschedule flights or you know give us uh, hotel rooms and
0: we well, were actually in... they have no choice because when you have a flight within Europe or to and from europe uh, you are eligible for flight compensation under the European Union flight delay compensation protocol okay and as a minimum, you're usually going to get about $700 a person if you ask for it.
3: So so help me figure this out, because I, I tried to apply for that, and they told me because the, the airline wasn't a, a United States airline.
0: Makes no difference. I, Makes no yeah. difference. They lied to you. Okay. Whether it's a U.S. airline, an Asian airline, a European airline, if you are flying within or to or from European airspace, they must comply and this is a common thing i hear from people flying a, a us airline that they are lied to and told that they don't qualify under the european protocol and that is a big fat lie so what well, what I'm, i want to tell you what you do go to whatever search engine google or whatever search engine you use and just type in the term european flight compensation okay and you'll see one briefing after another, including companies that want to sell you their services to do your application for you, um, how, what you're eligible for, and how you claim it. Okay. And the airline is, has to, they have to comply. It's just if you don't know to file with the proper procedure, they're going to do this thing where they lie.
3: Oh, okay. Well, what I, I went to actually to what I think was an independent um, company or, you know, situation. And they basically told me that because it was an American airline that I was not allowed compensation. Untrue. And well, and the, the, the real issue here too, is that I originally booked the flight with a different airline, which is actually based in London. And that London airline
0: sold the flight to an American airline. Doesn't matter.
3: Doesn't yeah. matter that okay. it was
0: code share. You don't have to worry about okay. any of that. Okay. You guys stand up for yourself here. We even yeah. have a briefing at Clark.com that we did a year and a half ago on what your rights are if your flight to or from or within Europe is delayed or canceled. Okay. I mean, this is This is something, and we've done this because of hearing from people like you that you're being lied to by a U.S. airline. So it it is um, your right to the compensation. We should have a system like that in the United States. And unfortunately, we don't because the airlines are too powerful in a corrupt Washington. But paying you compensation when you were delayed, inconvenience, misconnections or whatever is commonsensical. If you don't show up for the flight, They tell you tough, you lose your money. Why, if they don't deliver the flight, as contracted with you. Why you don't get the compensation is a complete rigged system in the U.S.
4: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
0: Tina's with us. And Tina, you love gold. Yes, I do. Hi, Clark. How are you? I'm doing well. And yourself? Good. So tell me about your love for gold.
2: So I was curious and wondering: Is it a good thing to invest in gold? If so, why? And if it's not, why? So gold reading... is. Let
0: me let me say something to you. Gold is not an investment. Gold is a, a hedge against bad times. An investment is where you in, let's say you invest in a company and they're making a product or they provide a service or whatever. You're uh-huh. investing on them making a product more profitably than they have in the past or having a service that's making more money than it did in the past. Gold just sits there. There's even a cost to storing it. So gold is there as, uh, when I say hedge, it's there that when things go bad in the world, gold tends to go up in value because people use gold as like a safe zone. Okay. So it's not in any way a classic investment. I have no problem with somebody owning gold, but when they own it, I like it for, to be never more than 10% of the money they have to put into something, preferably 5%. And you don't have to buy physical gold anymore. You can buy a fund that actually has gold stored in a vault for you, So it's much cheaper to buy it that way and sell it that way through what's known as an exchange-traded fund, and I've got information on how to do that on Clark.com. Okay. But it's really just a side thing you do in your life. It's not the big thing you do in your life. Gold mainly is something to own so you can wear it and enjoy it, not something to have to store in some vault or something.